1: You are in for a treat this episode. One of the most common questions that I get asked is, how do I find my passions? Or how do I know which passion I should pursue? And so today we are going to just unpack that. I have a guest, Dara Brewstein, on with me. She is a prolific writer and interviewer, and her thought leadership articles on lifestyle design have been read by over 1 million people across Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Thrive Global. Her motivating motto, build a life of your own design, a career to fund it, and a network to support it has inspired thousands to reach higher and dream bigger. She was even named number one to follow by Boss Babe magazine. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode on how on earth we find our passions. You're listening to She with Jordan Lee Dooley, a personal development podcast for the everyday woman. Come invited, leave ignited. Here's your host, Jordan Lee Dooley. Hey, Daryl, welcome to the She Podcast.
0: Thanks, Jordan. So nice to be here.
1: Oh, it's so nice to have you. I'm so glad that we've got connected. And you recently got to write a a piece that I got to contribute and share a little bit of my story in Forbes, which was such an honor. So thank you for for including me in that and now for giving your time.
0: It's not typically how people become friends through <laughs> writing an article. <laughs> through writing an article for Forbes. <laughs> hey, you know what? But Things I'll work out. It. It's awesome. It's <laughs> awesome.
1: Well, with that said, I mean, you obviously you write for Forbes and you write for several publications. Have you always known that you wanted to be a writer? Because as a fellow writer and someone who has that is a big part of my career as well, I'm just curious how you got involved with that. Was that like a lifelong dream of yours, or something that you stumbled into? I think that's just a great place to start.
0: I definitely think that there's cues in one's childhood and Mm. that we often neglect them. And Mm. so as a really young kid, I would sit in the corner of the classroom and write chapter books in first and second grade and would compete with my friends for how quickly we could blast through Nancy Drew books and everything else and (laughs) Babysitter's Club And we had the same childhood. I read all this, (laughs) or like uh, there was
1: another one that I can't even think of right now. Boxcar Children was another one that I read.
0: (laughs) Yes, you are bringing me so happily back. (laughs) And yeah, I was definitely nerding out over all of that as a kid, and never thought of it as oh, this is going to be my career. But I do remember my first grade teacher saying to me, "Oh, you should be a writer." Hmm. But I didn't really think of that as a career path, and sort of let it pass by in my rearview mirror over the years. And as I got older, people kept saying to me, follow your passion, blah, blah, blah. And and all of this stuff didn't really add up because at the time I wasn't even thinking that writing was a passion. And I think it was in part because I think other people can probably relate to this, that when you grow up through the school system, reading and writing often take on this new meaning where it feels forced and almost like something you just have to do. Mm. And it took all the fun out of it. And I didn't really feel like it was creative anymore, something that was letting those juices flow. So, you know, long story short, I never really thought that it was going to be a writer. But as I got older, my parents actually moved out of the country and sent me all my childhood stuff. And when I looked through it, I was like, oh my gosh, I was binding books and writing Mm. all the time and really went back to, oh, that was really something. But that wasn't necessarily the trigger for me. It was, simply that I realized in my early 20s after I graduated from college that the only writing I was doing was email. Hmm, (laughs) And that if I wanted to exercise that muscle, like any muscle in your life that you have to work it, otherwise it gets fatigued and atrophied. And so I just started my own blog and I called it the Betwixter, And it was this intersection of the words betwixt and twixter, which basically mean one at a crossroads. <laughs> and I felt like when you're in your 20s and your 30s, which I perceived from that vantage point at the time, that you really are at this unique crossroads in your life where your friends begin to diverge in their paths and you're having to figure out a lot of stuff that isn't just laid out for you anymore. Yeah. And I wanted to explore that. And so that mm. parlayed into bigger gigs and bigger gigs, but I really wasn't focused on it. I was focused on growing my companies, which I was doing into 38 States. Mm. So wow.
1: Okay. It, it was, Wait, hang on. You know what? It makes complete sense that you're writing for for publications like Forbes and thrive places like that. Um, okay. So I'm curious then it sounds like you took time and it took a little bit of time, honestly, and digging in to really find your passion and realize like, Oh, this is a thing. And I think I remember one time when I was going through a season of life where I was like, I don't know my passion. Like, I don't know what I like. I'm just doing the things that I'm supposed to do per se, you know, or that, you know, seem practical. And I think sometimes we feel like we can't really blend practical with our passions. Um, and I remember sharing that with my mom, who's like my ultimate advice giver. And she was like, Jay, what did you do when you were five? And yes. I was like, well, what did I do when I was five? You know, and she said she brought out some of the old short stories that I wrote. I would write these little short stories in these books and I would illustrate them. Um, and then I also, you know, loved to, I would line up all my stuffed animals and teach them, right. And like speak to them. Mm. Um, so it made complete sense that it, kind of evolved into a career of like writing and coaching and speaking and education and things like that. Um, In a way that's very organic, but I never really thought that would be what I would do. You know, it's crazy how it happens when you when you start digging into those little indicators or those little glimpses from your childhood that actually can be very significant. Um, But like you said, I know you've owned a few businesses. Were you passionate about your first jobs or businesses? from the time that you started them? Or where did that passion come from? Because I think sometimes people perceive that when you start something that you're good at or that you seem to thrive at, you were passionate from the start. And I'm just curious if that was the case for you or like, what does that look like for you?
0: Well, yes and no. And I think actually this lays out a really interesting archetype for people who struggle like I did with the passion piece. So when I graduated from school, I studied really... I studied things that were not super applicable in the real world. Let's just put it that way. I was a double major in religion and Italian. Hmm. And I graduated and all my friends were going off into the world making these hefty salaries. And I'm feeling entirely lost. Like, what do I do with this? And Hmm. I don't really know what I'm, quote unquote, passionate about. Hmm. And so when I followed that advice, I thought, well, the thing that I know I'm passionate about at age 22 is fashion. Hmm. And so I made it my mission to work in the fashion industry and certain doors open based on relationships, which is how this world often works. Mm-hmm. And I found myself working in the wholesale fashion arena for a company based in LA where I was able to work out of Atlanta, where I've been based since college. Hmm. And they basically said to me, okay, listen, you're going to take this clothing line and you're going to sell it in all of these Southeast States to Retailers, boutiques, and department stores, and we want you to sell a million dollars worth of product within your first three years. Mm. And that sounded entirely daunting. I had never sold anything. My closest thing to selling something in my sales experience in the past was being my sorority's rush chair and feeling like I was selling this dream of being in our sorority to, you know, a thousand women. Mm. And that was all that I really knew. And so I took it and I ended up hitting that goal in 10 months. Mm. So I thought, oh, well, I can actually do this. But what I started to realize once I hit that, that was one I had already hit the ceiling and that there was nowhere else for me to grow. I'd maximize my territory and my options. And two, that I actually wasn't passionate at all about the job that I was doing. Hmm. I found that the day to day of what it entailed was me in a car driving to random places in the Southeast, staying in two and a half star hotels and motels, eating alone at Carabas, and going <laughs> to, tar- to Target to fill my time because I was bored and alone. Hmm. And it Really started to hit me that just because I was passionate about fashion. It didn't mean that I was going to be passionate about working in that industry. Mm. And when I started looking at the landscape of other jobs in that arena, I realized none of these are really for me. Mm. So then I started to think, well, what if I don't start passionate about the thing? What if I become passionate about it? Mm. And I figure out what are my strengths and what are the things that I gravitate towards on a day-to-day basis? And how do I become passionate about the thing that way? Hmm. So after a few years, so basically, long story short, what that is, I not only was ready to leave, but I felt really comfortable. And at that young age, I was 23 at the time I'd been with the company for about a year and a half. And I knew in my heart of hearts that I needed to go, but I didn't really have the gumption to do it because I had no idea where to go next. Mm. And I was good at it and it was comfortable. And so I felt like, well, I say that I'm looking, but really I was just spinning my wheels. Mm. So the company ended up going under about seven days before Christmas in 2007. And this was also subsequently three months after I had bought my first house, which I had only done because I had a restraining order against my landlord. So I didn't want to have another one. And Mm. all of a sudden I'm in this place of well, gosh, I have real grown-up responsibilities financially Mm -hmm. now. I don't have a job. I don't want to foreclose on this house. And I was really fearful Mm -hmm. and yet I didn't know what net was going to be next. And so Mm -hmm. over the course of the next couple of years, I took a lot of jobs just trying to grasp at straws and feel like, well, I think I have an interest in real estate. So let me be the personal assistant to this woman who's a home flipper and she has a show on CNN. And that seems interesting. I just was grasping and looking Mm -hmm. and took a number of things that ultimately I was getting laid off time and again, or my hours were getting cut back because this thus was the height of the recession, 2007 Mm. to 2009. So I kept feeling like I was banging my head against these walls and thinking, I'm good at these things. I'm hitting my goals, but the companies are going under and they can't afford to keep me. So maybe this old tale of go work for someone else, you know, check the boxes, it will all work out, wasn't in fact working for me. And also this old idea of working for someone else is always more stable than working for yourself, Mm. I began to think that maybe that wasn't true. Mm. So at this point, I'm 25 years old, and my twin brother reaches out to me. He was living in San Diego at the time, and he said, listen, I have this idea to start a credit card processing brokerage that doesn't exist, but credit card processing does, and I'm going to blend these two models, and I really think that we should partner on this. Mm. And at first, that passion thing was really looming over me because I thought, well, I have no passion for that. That sounds, in fact, Tremendously boring. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of insulted that you think I'm gonna do that actually. (laughs) And he said, okay, we'll give it some thought. And 24 hours later, I called him. I said, you know what? That was my ego talking. I think that this is something that's worth pursuing. And so I ended up parlaying a lot of the clients from the wholesale fashion world into our first clients for this business and grew and grew. And over time, I began to realize that the transverse property of what I'm talking about with this passion thing came to be true for me, that I realized that the day-to-day of what made up the work in this credit card processing business were things that I were was passionate about. Hmm. And in turn, I became passionate about that business and that industry that seemed so far off in the first place, Mm. because I was working day in and day out, learning, meeting different entrepreneurs and learning about their industries, helping people improve the bottom line of their businesses. And then I was able to do that wherever I was, because travel and freedom were really important to me. So I would travel all the time and work wherever I was. And all of these things were checking the boxes. And I started Mm. to think, oh, I can become passionate about something in a bit of a reverse engineered capacity.
1: Hmm. I love that. I think sometimes that's such an unconventional way of looking at finding your passion. And I think that's so genius because I think we often look for it in like, what's my big passion? Then how do I make a career fit that rather than how do I find maybe these micro passions or how do I find passion within the day to day and the mundane? I mean, that's like a huge theme of my book. It's like, how do you wake up and live with a passion and a purpose in the everyday, in the micro ways that you can succeed rather than all these big macro huge things, you know? And I think we often miss that. And we often look at passion from one lens. And I love that you almost, re- like you said, reverse engineered it. I think that's huge and something we need to hear more,
0: you know? So I love that. Um, well, if I may, I, I am so with you on all of that. And I think that there's also the converse. I think some yes. people are really fortunate And that works for them. And so with my second business happened by accident and I started a networking events company because I had a friend reach out to me and say, where can I go where I'm not going to get hit on sold to or everyone's my parents age or in my industry? Hmm. And my response to her was, I don't know where that is. I'm really immersed in the networking community in Atlanta. It doesn't exist, but I love to connect people. It's the thing I think I'm best at. Why don't I just start it for you? And lo and behold, that was eight years ago. And now I have a 30,000 person networking events company. And it's. That for me was the opposite sort of effect of passion where I realized Mm -hmm. I am passionate about connecting people and it really fit the adage of do what you love and the money will come. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that works. But I will also say that eight years in, I don't feel as passionate about Mm -hmm. it anymore because there's real life Mm -hmm. and stuff gets hard and you have teams and you have, you know, stuff comes up. And so. To think, I really love what you talked about and what you talked about in your book that you have to fall in love with the everyday stuff because mm-hmm. if you don't, if you think you're going to live in the highlight reel or you're going to live on those emotional highs, it's really fe- going to feel disappointing and like you're chasing this non-existent unicorn that doesn't exist of feeling passionate all the time.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think it's so true. I think there's these different angles. And I think so often we talk about the one, which is like you said, 1000% true and it can certainly happen. And I think a lot of us have probably experienced that to some degree, but looking at it kind of from both angles and then ultimately understanding that not everything is passion. You know, your passion tank isn't going to be full all the time. And I think that's where perseverance comes in a little bit. I think sometimes yes. there's like that's what shapes you and drives character. It's like if you're solely operating on the fume of passion, you might end up, you're going to burn out, right? Like you're not going to do well. And I've, yes. I've made that mistake. I know that there's times I've totally felt like, and I think there is a little bit of that pressure and maybe you can speak into this a little bit too, but I think sometimes there's this um, maybe not even intended pressure, but we sometimes feel like, oh, okay, if I'm passionate about it, it must be a career. And there's certain things that I've learned that I'm like, well, maybe I can be passionate about it and not have to monetize it. Or exactly. maybe I can be passionate about it and totally monetize it and totally make it a career. But I think there's that mindset where it's like, I've had readers reach out to me, this is why I say this, and they've said, thank you for highlighting and giving me permission that just because I'm passionate about it doesn't mean I'm doing something wrong if I'm choosing not to turn it into a business or a career um, yes. or that I'm doing something wrong if I am. You know what I mean? It's like it there isn't a one size fits all, if you're passionate in that's your thing.
0: You know what I mean? So
1: my hands are like in the air,
0: like (laughs) phrasing over here. I'm so with you. And I have, I had that exact same experience where when I was applying to colleges, I thought, well, I love fashion. I love photography. I'm going to become a fashion photographer. And so when I was in college, I apprenticed with a photographer for a while, and I realized, whoa, doing this professionally and monetizing it is actually ruining my love for it. Yeah. So I realized that some things are meant to be hobbies, and mm-hmm. things that you do because you love them, and you don't want to commingle that with clients and commerce. Mm-hmm. And some things are the things that you do because you can do them simultaneously.
1: Mm-hmm. I I have had such similar experiences, so I'm so glad we're talking about this. I think it needs to be talked about more. Okay, I'm curious. So tell me a little bit about your decision making process, because I know you've stepped into some things and then also stepped away from some things. And that's really been a part of my story, too. And um, there's I think sometimes life comes in phases and there's seasons and there's times where you really steward this and you build, build, build. And then there's times where you go, OK, I need to pivot a little bit or let that go or identify that that might not be healthy or what I'm supposed to be focusing on now and whatever it is. So I know you've stepped in and out of certain things. And what's your decision making process like when deciding to step away from a project or something that you've done?
0: For me, I am a decision maker based on my intuition. Mm. And I know, like I interviewed a guy once named Jeff Barger who wrote a book on the seven styles of decision making. So I understand that people make decisions differently. Mm. For me, it's entirely based initially on my instincts. So for example, recently I had this weird looming feeling that something was really off for me, but I couldn't put my finger on it. So I told my fiance, Brendan, I said, let's just go take a day to be in nature, hike, be in the water, have a bit of a silent retreat, meditate, Mm -hmm. journal, do all of it. And once we got into the woods, the second we got there, I said, don't talk. I just need to be quiet. And within about 30 seconds, I looked up and I said, I have to sell my company. And he's like, what? And I was like, it is so abundantly clear to me that this is the thing that's draining me now that once was a thing that really made me feel alive. Mm -hmm. And I had to come to terms with that because it was a part of my identity. And it was this thing that I had become so accustomed to doing. And now I'm in the thick of selling it, but Mm -hmm. it that is one example or like i sit i sat for 12 years on the board of my university and i was sitting in a meeting about a month ago and it was an all day saturday meeting and i just Listen to what we we're talking about. And I was like, gosh, I feel like we've been talking about the same thing for the past five years. And in the middle of the break, I walked up to the board president. And I said, Listen, I want to let you know that this is going to be my last meeting and here's why. And just made that decision in the moment. Because I think there's a lot of times where your gut will tell you to do something mm. and you sit on it and spin with it for so long because you want to gather all the information or you want to mm. check in with everyone or you want to weigh all the pros and cons. And not to say that you go around you know cavalierly making decisions mm-hmm. all the time and you don't weigh the consequences mm-hmm. but in some cases your gut is screaming at you mm-hmm. and if you're silencing it then it's going to scream louder and louder until the circumstances force you basically to make that change mm-hmm. or you're drained and your body is telling you often we get physically sick and our body is telling us mm-hmm. what we need to do but we shouldn't have to get to that point because through however you get quiet with yourself if it's prayer if it's meditation if it's running if it's whatever mm-hmm. cooking mm-hmm. that's when your mind and your subconscious and your body is able to tell you these things you just have to pause long enough to tap mm-hmm. into that
1: so good. That is one of the biggest things that I think we can forget is the need to, to pause and actually lean in. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but I'm a very strategic person too. So I'm like, well, if this happens and how do we strategize that? Yes. But I also have had to learn a little bit more of leaning in and actually listening to those gut reactions. And even if I can't quite put my finger on why they're there, there's been some decisions in my life recently that I've been like, I just know this isn't right for the long haul. And everyone's like, well, why what's wrong with it? I'm like, I'm working on that. (laughs) I'm like, I will get there, you know, so I can relate to that to some degree too.
0: Um, Well, that's the tough part because we don't always have to have the answers for ourselves. But the second we start putting it mm. out to other people, we feel this need to connect the dots or they want to know the answers, Mm. which means that we have to become comfortable with the discomfort Mm -hmm. of not necessarily having all of those answers, Mm -hmm. which is why I think it's so important to have almost your core insider group of people with whom you can have these conversations safely Mm -hmm. and not feel like you're going to falter in what you know is best for you. Like there was a time where even my mother told me I should quit my first company because we were off to such a bad start in the first two years. And we had a couple embezzlements and like things were going really badly in the Mm -hmm. beginning. And when she told me that I was like, wow, like kick a girl when she's down, but she was trying to look out for me and she was trying to protect me from her perspective. Mm -hmm. But I had to lovingly drown out her voice with my own and my Mm. own intuition and keep going because I knew I had more in me and that we could do it. Mm. And even though people love you and will have your best interest at heart, doesn't necessarily mean it's best for you. So at the end of the day, there has to be this sieve that you put the opinions of others through mm-hmm. where you let it go through your own instinct, your own intuition, your own parameters and frameworks so that at the end, you decide what are the morsels that I'm going to take away.
1: Mm, that's good. And that's the thing too. I love that you said morsels because there can be components of advice or suggestions that were are given because um, that's what we have to remember too. I think we when we, when it's especially, especially when it's someone that we really love or that has really a lot of impact and um, leverage, not leverage, I don't know if that's the word, but a lot of say in our lives. Like there are certain voices. I have a small circle of people when they speak, I, I listen. Right. And there's a lot of people who want to give opinions that I'm like, well, you're not really in my circle. Right. But when it's one <laughs> of those people, um, you want to take that with a grain of salt and you also want to even maybe take parts of it or morsels of it that you can apply. It doesn't mean you have to take it as a command or as full, you know, truth as to what you must do right now. Um, But I think I love, I just love the way you said that those morsels, those pieces where, well, there might be a little wisdom in this. Maybe I don't need to completely stop or that might not be where my heart and mind are, but maybe I need to pivot a little bit or look at it through a new lens or, you know what I mean? So I think that that's, really really actually a wise way of looking at sometimes the advice that we can be given otherwise i think we can feel like oh my gosh i'm letting so and so down and their opinion matters so much to me because they're so important in my life right and by not doing it and so just even considering the ways we can take little bits and pieces can even be a way to apply and be respectful in that regard and also maybe even make positive change thank you to lola for sponsoring this episode Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, liners, and all-natural cleansing wipes. The founders had a simple and seemingly obvious idea. Women shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to feminine care products. They asked themselves, if we care about the ingredients in the food we eat and the beauty products we use, why shouldn't the same be true of our feminine care products? And to that I say, amen. Unlike other major brands, Lola products are 100% natural and easy to feel good about. No mystery fibers and no doubts about what's going in your body. Plus, Lola products come in a simple, customizable subscription. Lola will deliver exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. Did you know the FDA doesn't require brands to disclose a comprehensive list of ingredients in their feminine care products, so most of them don't? Lola offers complete transparency about the ingredients found in their tampons, pads, liners, and wipes. Most major brands use a mix of synthetic ingredients in their products, including rayon and polyester. Their feminine care products may also be treated with harsh chemical cleansing agents, fragrances, and dyes. Lola products are 100% organic with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics, or dyes. Plus, you do good with your purchase. For every purchase, Lola donates feminine care products to homeless shelters across the United States. I am a big fan of Lola, and I'm personally so glad that I made the switch to organic cotton feminine care products. It can make such a difference. If you want to make the switch or if you want to give Lola a try, you can get 40% off your first month's subscription by visiting mylola.com and entering the code SHE when you subscribe. Again, that's mylola.com and enter the code SHE when you subscribe to get 40% off your first month. Speaking of that, tell me about the effect mentors have had on your journey.
0: Mentors have meant so much to me in my journey, but I want to, I guess, level set and sort of get on the same wavelength around the definition of mentorship mm-hmm. because growing up, I always felt like mentorship was the person behind the big maple desk with the big <laughs> leather chair and you're sitting on the other side and you show up at every given Tuesday or mm-hmm. whatever and you know they're pouring in all of their intellectual property into your brain and it's a very lopsided relationship. And while, I mean, that's a little bit dramatized, but while that's one version (laughs) of mentorship, I've come to learn that there's so many others. Mm. Like you are a great example of this. Like you put out tons of great content into the world. You speak, you write, you do all this stuff. And that allows you to be a mentor from afar for a lot of people. And Mm. this is one great way that there are people whom you admire and respect, whose thought leadership you can ingest without them having any knowledge of who you are or what impact that has on you. And that's actually really powerful because it allows you to access anyone mm-hmm. and learn from them because they're publishing and producing. Mm-hmm. So mentors from afar, really great one. I love the idea of co-mentorship. And this is one that I adopted a couple of years ago when I realized that there were areas in my life and businesses that I really wanted to level up and get better. And that I had people in my lives who were peers and friends who were exceptional at those things. And often I would find that they often had a need that I had the capacity and the skill set for as well. So we would go into periods of co-mentorship of, okay, let me learn from you about you know, at the time, maybe it was digital marketing. And for me, they want to learn how to scale a business. And we would set up times and we'd set up our own framework and parameters and boundaries. And we would go until we both felt satisfied. And then whenever that expired, we'd go back to being friends. And then the last version of mentorship I think is important to consider is mentoring moments, which are, you know, maybe Jordan, you and I met at a conference and we had five minutes to sit down and I knew a bit about you or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And I had a question and you could share with me importance into me in that moment. Mm. That is a mentorship moment that I don't have to have a formal relationship ongoingly where you're consistently doing Mm. that. But I think those are really important as well. And I think this is really, really doable in the connected digital age that we're in, Mm. where many people have intellectual heroes. I myself am not excluded from that. And I am the type, like, for example, I wrote a children's book on financial literacy many years ago. And my hero in that space was Julie Agner-Clark, who's the woman who started Baby Einstein, because I at the time dreamt of being the Baby Einstein of financial literacy. Mm. And I thought, well, how do I connect with her and ask the questions that I have respectfully? So I decided to take a ton of time researching everything I could find on her online, watching any talks she had given, reading any articles that she wrote or had been highlighted in. And then crafting a really thoughtful email that expressed that I had one question for her, shared the question and just said, if you have time to answer this, it would mean a lot. And the reason I did that was because I think so many people get this wrong. You probably get this a lot, Jordan. I get this a lot too, as someone who publishes a lot of content Mm -hmm. where people will reach out and just say, can I pick your brain or can I take you to coffee? And like, I have written so many articles on why I think that's the second worst question in the world, followed by starting a conversation with what do you do? Mm -hmm. Because it's really, it feels really disrespectful to someone who has put so much out in the world or to think that, for example, asking them to spend an hour with you is an appropriate exchange for you having developed no relationship with them. Mm -hmm. So when I went and did this for her, she reached out to me the next day and said, I'll do you one better. Let's just get on the phone and talk. I'd be happy to do it. And I, I believe that's because she saw how much intention I put into that ask mm-hmm. and how little I asked of her. And I have seen this work time and time again. It's how I now have a series every week with Deepak Chopra because I treated him in a very similar manner where we actually developed a friendship and then we're able to mutually find value in doing something like this together. Mm-hmm. And so for anyone who's seeking mentorship in any of the capacities that I just touched on... It's really important to do your homework and be respectful and ingest everything you can about that person and their work before you go asking for some sort of exchange from them, Mm -hmm. unless you feel like there's a mutual value add. And another great way to do it, too, is to find a way to add value in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, do you have a resource that might be helpful do you have a connection that might be useful? Do you just simply engage with them on their social media platforms, offering positive feedback Mm -hmm. that... No one is immune to liking that like that always feels nicer offering sincere compliments. All of that goes a really long way Mm -hmm. towards finding mentorship, whether it's in a moment, in a co-mentorship way, in a traditional style or from afar. Mm -hmm.
1: I love that you broke down multiple ways to be mentored or to have a mentor because I get this question. So like you said, I get the can I pick your brain (sighs) often. It's interesting to me how a lot of times that's you know a big question for sure, um, but that there's often this idea that there's only one way to be mentored or to find a mentor. Like, how do you find a mentor? And I'm like, maybe there's more than one. You know what I mean? Like maybe it's yes. not this is the formal relationship because I think that can be hard. It's hard to find someone that can commit to. All right, you, I am your mentor because that's a big responsibility, and I have a couple of those go to people for sure. But I also would say that I have a lot of mentors who are not so consistent or traditional or even friends of mine that are two years ahead of me in creating content online or in whatever type of work they do, you know, even author friends and or even just what you just said to me was a mentoring moment. You just poured into me in a way that I never really thought about by listening to you. And so I love that you broke down that there's these different dynamics. I think that takes a little bit of the pressure to find a mentor off. Right. It kind of simplifies it like, oh, maybe I could be looking for mentorship in all arenas of life and then offering value to and actually offering myself as a mentor, as a value add, as a positive force in this person's life or in other people's lives, because that's going to come back in a very positive way for me, too. So such exactly. good wisdom well, there.
0: If I can share a couple more things there. One is that I think the biggest mistake people make, aside from what I already mentioned, is that they go into it with this Almost intimidating ask of like, I'll get emails from people just saying, Hi, my name is blank. Will you be my mentor? Hmm. And it feels so daunting. It's like someone walking up to you at a restaurant and saying, Hi, do you want to get married? Yeah, totally. You're just like, Who are you? What's your name? What matters to you? And it's Mm -hmm. very, very overwhelming. So to consider how do you ease into something like you would in dating? Like, how Mm -hmm. do you take it one step at a time? And to your earlier point about seasons, Jordan, there are seasons in these mentorship cycles as well, because what you need will change. And there's mm-hmm. also, I didn't even mention reverse mentoring mm-hmm. that like I live in Atlanta, Coca-Cola is headquartered here. I remember years ago, they brought me in and said, hey, we're creating this reverse mentorship program where all of our executives are getting mentored by millennials because we don't know how to hire them. We don't know how to train them. We don't know how to recruit them. We don't know how to work with them. And I thought that was really smart that just because you're at an earlier stage in your life or career doesn't mean you don't have something value to offer someone at a much more seasoned stage. Mm. So keep that in mind as well, that you really do have something to offer. Mm. And then lastly, there's a challenge that I want to offer for people that is a really good way, I think, to dig deeper into this idea of adding value to the people in your sphere that can unlock some of these doors as a byproduct. It's what I call the give it forward challenge. And it's a simple choice for, I recommend 30 days, but you can do it for whatever duration you choose reach out to someone, you know, or have just met and say, hi, I've decided and committed to take this 30 day, give it forward challenge. And I'm, I've committed to offering to be a resource or help to one person a day with absolutely no strings attached. So is there Mm -hmm. something that I could do to be helpful or a resource or help get you closer to a dream or a goal or Mm -hmm. help you tackle a problem that you're facing or fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And I promise you I not only won't ask for anything in return, but if you offer it, the only thing that I will say is I ask that you give it forward to someone else. Hmm. And what I have found as a result of this, and I've done this in tandem with hundreds of people simultaneously, and we've gotten on a Facebook group and tracked the outcomes. Is one just how good it feels. It feels mm-hmm. so good to go out into the world looking out for other people before you look out for yourself. I think it's actually the yeah. quickest way to de stress and get out of your own BS. Totally. <laughs> Two, it's an incredible way to dive into your own network and reconnect with people and add that value. Three, it's such a positive reminder that you have so much to offer in the world that you're probably taking for granted because it comes so easily to you or because it maybe looks different than it does for someone else. Yeah. And then it's also this really incredible domino effect of goodness mm. that comes back to you. If you've never read Adam Grant's work, Give and Take, I'm saying this to the general you listener. This is such a powerful way to take what I'm anecdotally telling you and putting scientific evidence between or behind what I'm saying and telling you that givers win in the end and that his mm-hmm. studies demonstrate that. And that it's not about one for one, but it's about I give to Jordan and Jordan gives to someone and someone gives to someone and eventually it comes back to me. Mm -hmm. I call this the karmic retribution of giving Mm -hmm. and it's real and Mm -hmm. it works. Mm -hmm. And this is a really tangible, easy way to spend five minutes a day giving it a try. Mm I love that concept
1: givers are the ones that win because we are so often told, you know, like hold things tightly. It's like that scarcity mindset. And it's like, we're not even told. I think there's like this subconscious belief that like, look out for yourself, watch out for number one. And like, yes, yes, like take care of yourself, self-care, make sure you are, you know, pausing and listening and doing all the things that obviously help guide decision making and keep a healthy life and prioritize, you know, your ability to give to others. But I think sometimes that's not always very well balanced sometimes with that message of, so that you can give well, right? It's, or so that you can be one of those people who are really like a catalyst for others, a cheerleader for others, especially when you do it with a no strings attached mindset. Like I gave you this. So I expected that if I were to do that in my marriage, I would not have a very happy relationship. You know what I mean? And it's like, why do we do that in network relationships or work relationships? It's like, it's going to come back to you in one form or another. If you don't have the expectation that it that this specific thing you're doing is needs to somehow be repaid. Right. And I think we have that subconscious exactly. belief ingrained in us. Um, but there's so much joy in giving if we allow that to be our, our kind of way of doing things. So I'm so well, glad you what brought you're that up.
0: saying is really the difference between giving and being a martyr that you mm-hmm. can still have appropriate boundaries. Yes. As a giver, you don't have to give to everyone because you're a giver Mm -hmm. and you want to make sure that you're doing it from an authentic place of I actually want to do this and I want to say yes to this, Mm -hmm. which really then comes down to creating your own boundaries around what you say yes and no to. Mm -hmm.
1: That's good. That's good. Dropping the truth palms. (laughs) Okay. I have one last question because I think this is something everyone's probably wondering. What would you say to the woman or the gal who feels like there isn't movement or forward progress in her life or when she's trying to find her passion? Like if she's been searching and trying and just feeling like she's not landing on anything or not seeing a whole lot of forward progress or, you know, forward movement, what would you say to her? She's trying to find her passion.
0: I would say lots to her. One is, I feel you. I was that woman. I struggled Mm. for years feeling like my friends were laughing me in life because Mm. they had it figured out and I felt like I was floundering. So, one, like, I'm with you. I get it. And Mm. with that, you have to trust your path and the unfolding of it. Mm. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that I use this sort of river analogy or metaphor of when you feel like you're going with the current and the current is moving you and the doors are opening and things are clicking. That's when I know that I'm on the right path. Mm. When I feel like I am swimming upstream against the current or like I'm white knuckling to make something happen that I feel so committed to, that's when I know I'm on the wrong path. Because Mm. then I am forcing and creating resistance instead of letting things happen effortlessly. But effortlessness gets a bit of a miscomprehension because it doesn't mean you don't show up, it doesn't mean you don't work hard, it doesn't mean you're not persistent and it doesn't mean you're not consistent. But it means that things are working with you and for you. Again, small caveat, doesn't mean everything will be perfect. Hmm. That is not what I'm saying, but there is a difference between being in that flow state and being in that forced Making everything happen. Hmm. But tangibly, there's an exercise that I suggest that anyone who feels like they're trying to get more clarity around passion and purposes. And it's a series of questions I created. It's seven or nine. I can't remember offhand, but I can share it with you if you have show notes where you want to put it. And it's this idea of going to the people who surround you in your community and asking them these questions that will help you find your path. Hmm. And the questions are things like, When do you see me at my best and when do you see me at my worst? What do you come to me for when the chips are down? If you could wish one thing for me in the next year, what would it be? What's something you know about me that I don't know about myself and Mm -hmm. a few others? And the reason for this, oh, and also one of the important things about this is that you don't reciprocate because you don't want the person on the giving end initially to feel like they're going to hold back because they're worried about what you're going to say. Hmm. So you, you, and I love doing it in writing where I'll send an email to 10 or 20 people from different stations of my life. So family, coworkers, friends, people who knew me in different stages Mm -hmm. and just say, listen, it would mean the world to me if you would take 15 minutes to do this. I promise you one, this won't be reciprocated. And two, the only thing I'm going to say when you respond to me is thank you. Mm -hmm. And that's it basically, because the people around us can really reflect things back on us that we don't know for ourselves, Mm -hmm. or they can help us see it more clearly. Like this is actually the thing that I did many years ago that helped me understand that being a connector was a superpower Mm -hmm. and that it wasn't just this thing that anyone could do or that wasn't unique at all. Mm -hmm. And I just always took it for granted. But when people, I sussed out out this pattern across every one of these 20 interviews and they kept saying like we always come to you to connect the dots we always come to you to put the pieces together we always come to you because you're going to convene the right people hmm. and I kept being like well, that's not special or different they're like yeah it is
1: hmm.
0: and things like that can begin to stand out for you in a way that you probably can't see your own shadow hmm. so I highly recommend doing that exercise
1: hmm. so good and so powerful now I'm like I want to do that exercise <laughs> <laughs>
0: You should. So, I mean, you I obviously will. have a lot of clarity, but stuff can still percolate from that. That can be really powerful.
1: You know what? There are some days I'm like, I don't think I have any clarity and I have no idea what I'm doing. So, <laughs> and then there's days you where we're like, both.
0: yeah, it's like, wait, no, we're <laughs> mad. we know
1: where we're going. So no, I think that would be really, really good. Well, where can everyone find you? And even how can we find that? I'll, I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes if there's a link to it.
0: Perfect. Yeah. So everything is on my website. It's Dara.co, darra Co. I have so much free stuff on there. I have a free masterclass with Deepak Chopra on living a more meaningful life and a ton of other stuff, as well as this article and many others, and I can send it directly. And then I show up prolifically every day on Instagram at Dara B, trying to be a service and value both in actionable and inspirational stuff so that this kind of stuff that we're talking about now you're getting it in, in a daily dose. Hmm.
1: So good. All right. Well, you guys, we are going to link everything so you can find that exercise and find out more of what Dara has to share. Dara, thank you so much for being on and for your time and all the wisdom. It has been such a pleasure, such an honor. And I feel so refreshed, honestly. I'm like, great. I now need to do this exercise and also think about my mentoring (laughs) situations. (laughs) I love it. So good. Thanks so much, girl. Thank you. I'd love to hear from you. It makes me so happy to see you tuning into this show. So if you're on Instagram, let me know what your favorite part of the show was by taking a screenshot of the episode you've tuned into and share it on your story. Tag me at Jordan Lee Dooley and tell me what your favorite quote or takeaway from today's show was so that I can see what's helping you and even feature what you share. This keeps me inspired and encouraged to keep creating new content And it's a great way to share something that your friends might love too. I can't wait to see you in Instagram world, my friend. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about the She Podcast or to get involved in Jordan's growing community, visit JordanLeedooley.com. Thanks for joining in today. Until next time, remain committed to intentional choices that refine your heart, faith, health, and work because your story is much too important to settle for anything less.